From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Joel Street. I oversee the teams that produce Mayo Clinic Radio, the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast, and all the great content seen on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all, and for the time being, we'll change the sound of our program just a bit. In an effort to deliver the information that you and your family need to know, the first half of our program will be focused on COVID-19. This could be in the interview format that you're used to hearing, highlights from Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, or Mayo Clinic News Network coverage of the pandemic. Pandemic. The second half of the program will feature encore presentations of topics previously heard on Mayo Clinic Radio. Let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We all know that the COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted all of our lives, and we feel stress and anxiety as we all try to navigate a new normal. And we're all thinking about how can we better cope with these unsettling times. With me today to discuss some of these issues is Dr. Craig Sachuk. Dr. Sachuk is the Division Chair of Integrated Behavioral Health at Mayo Clinic. Hello, Dr. Sachuk. Hey, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on today. I understand that you have a couple of key recommendations that you like to share to assist us in managing uh, during the stressful time. We're all experiencing major changes in life and the way that we live our lives right now. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those three recommendations. Where we're at at this point, we usually recommend at least three things to just help to get people on the right track. And these are um, some things that are very controllable for us to do. They're very actionable items. So uh, the first thing that we recommend is actually just maintain a normal or daily routine. I mean, now we may have to redefine what that new normal routine is, but we're talking here about the basics. This is just like structure to the day, waking up at the same time every day, actually having a shower and getting dressed and and having good meals uh, during the day, going to bed at the same time, just keeping that intact. The second thing that we recommend is refilling the tank. So this is where we think of things like relaxation skills, you know, can be helpful, exercising, maybe giving your brain a little bit of a workout, trying to learn, you know, some new things, doing things that we actually really enjoy. And then the third and final thing, we talk about connecting and functionally disconnecting at the same time. So what we mean by connecting, this is where we're social animals. It's so important for us to connect to others. We may have to do things a little bit differently now, um, you know, and being respectful of social distancing. Uh, so this is where texting, phoning, video conferencing are really good. But we also want to make sure that we are functionally disconnecting as well. We're all marinating in the media right now, whether it be news or social media. So it's really good to set some boundaries on that. And we usually recommend uh, maybe about 15 minutes up to a half hour, once to twice per day. We'll keep you informed, but not overwhelmed by everything that you're seeing. Well, those are good uh, suggestions. I have found that the exercise is, can be particularly difficult if you're living in a cooler climate and you don't have your gym uh, to go to, so it does require some creativity, doesn't it? But yeah, adapting our, our exercise routines and, and even just movement, I think that's one way to look at it as well, too. Just try to look at different ways that you can be active, you know, 
during the day. So like, for example, if you need to go to the bathroom, go to the one that's the furthest away in your home, still get outside, and, you know, if, if you can maintain healthy social distance, but maybe tinkering in the yard, going for a couple of brief walks, you know, during the day, um, even doing some brief resistance training around the home, just kind of staying loose, but maybe just spreading out our physical activity. It doesn't necessarily have to be a 20 to 40 minute aerobic workout. Sometimes even standing at the kitchen counter with the computer is a nice yeah. break from sitting. Yeah, definitely. Craig, let's talk a little bit about, a little bit further about ways that people can navigate this new world that we're living in a little bit better. So much of what you just talked about, but maybe a few more specifics. And I'm thinking particularly about how we can keep our thinking in check. I think this is um, a stress-inducing time for everyone. There's anxiety about how long will this go on? Will I be able to buy toilet paper and food for my family, mm -hmm. um, et cetera? And I'm, I'm wondering how uh, you would advise uh, people to deal with this. Right, right. Because as we talked a little bit earlier on about how much uncertainty is in We can keep our thinking in check. I think this is um, a stress-inducing time for everyone. There's anxiety about how long will this go on? Will I be able to buy toilet paper and food for my family? And I'm, I'm wondering how uh, you would advise uh, people to deal with this. Right, because as we talked a little bit earlier on about how much uncertainty has impacted us, then we think of just these disruptions in again, our schedules are our normal routines, many of the things we would ordinarily do to navigate our life. And, and as we are seeing around us in our own family, in our communities, uh, and among our colleagues as well, um, all of a sudden experiencing new stressors, you know, people that have been living paycheck to paycheck, suddenly uh, the bottom has fallen out on, on that as well too. So if we think what happens you know, to the brain, whether we like it or not, as humans, we're naturally hardwired uh, to pay attention to threat. And uh, there's a lot of threat going on in the world right now. So just think about our limbic system, which is the fear center of our brain, is, is almost overly focused in on that threat right now. And it is, you know, to some degree normal, you know, that we should experience, you know, some anxiety and worry and, and stress and uncertainty. So we're, we're not aiming for, um, like, don't worry about this at all, or, or just think happy thoughts. We just have to really work with our thinking. And if you think about it, as emotions get cranked up, the flexibility and our ability to problem solve actually goes down. So we really have to be able to work on that and, and kind of resetting the balance. There are a couple of, of ways that we look at um, when the brain becomes anxious, where does the thinking go? And there's really three things that tend to happen. One is we tend to think of the worst case scenario. When we start to worry, um, it's kind of boring to think of, well, this will be minor. Um, no, the brain, when it's really anxious, will go more towards those worst case outcomes. Secondly, we tend to feel like those worst case outcomes are really likely to happen. So that sense of imminent risk or vulnerability. And then third is we tend to think about, uh, we tend to doubt actually our ability to cope. Uh, we really underestimate our ability to cope or recover you know, from adverse outcomes. So we actually um, really have to work hard to regain flexibility in our thinking. Craig, I think that for many people, those fears become particularly poignant 
in the middle of the night when they can't sleep. Yeah. And I'm wondering, do you have recommendations for how to manage those and get back to sleep? Well, it's uh, great been working with Mayo Clinic Radio. We probably have a number of podcasts on um, how to manage your sleep. Uh, so as I mentioned a little bit earlier on with um, sleep in particular, um, try to maintain a normal routine. You know, this is not a, a spring break or anything like that by any stretch of the imagination, but do our best to maintain a normal and healthy sleep routine. Uh, we really strongly encourage at least a half hour to an hour before your targeted bedtime. That's where you want to go into this kind of washout routine where you just eliminate any electronics, get the lights down low, do some relaxing things, maybe you know, and having a relaxing you know, shower or bath and get changed into your comfy clothes and go to bed. And at any point in time during your sleep window at night, but let's just say my sleep window is between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning, if at any point in time during that sleep window you find yourself laying awake for longer than about 15 to 20 minutes in bed, get up, go into another room like a living room or a family room, stay in a sitting up position and do really boring things. Uh, so like relaxation, listening to light music. No Netflix. No Netflix, I know. So you got a lot of habits you got to work on, I know, between uh, probably now and the next time we chat. Um, but, but do things that keep that brain in lower gear. And then when you start to feel sleepy, um, not tired, but sleepy, so your, your eyes are really heavy and you feel like your head is bobbing, that's a good sign to go back to bed. Um, another thing that we encourage and watch and want people to be mindful of, of try to do your best with staying active during the day. Um, sometimes napping is just something to do. You know, it's kind of like a filler, um, but what it can um, unfortunately do is it can um, uh, disintegrate uh, our sleep schedule at night. So really try to do your best to consolidate your sleep in the evening. Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after this. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. With me today is Dr. Craig Sachuk. Dr. Sachuk is the division chair of integrated behavioral health at Mayo Clinic. Sometimes one of the best things I can do is just take a minute, do something kind for someone else. That is scientific. <laughs> so That's you're, good. <laughs> you're staying within uh, some practice guidelines. And none of us want uh, bad things to happen with, without a doubt. And especially when you see times of uh, crises that we're in currently now, but also what we've seen historically, two silver linings come out of this. One, we just see significant innovations in, in practice, not only in medicine, but in, in business and what we're seeing in schools. But the second and more important thing that comes out of um, times of crisis is altruism. You see kindness, you see people doing kind acts for others. And remember, Lena, we were talking just a few moments ago about uh, the fear center of our brain kind of getting lit up and we become overly focused in on that negative information, you know, doing acts of kindness, reaching out to people, um, sending a note or a card, um, very deliberately focusing in on things that we're grateful for, it helps to balance out our thinking a little bit more. I liked what you said about being grateful. I have a colleague who told me that she's keeping a gratefulness list. Doing things like um, a checkpoint on gratefulness or there's other like mindfulness or even relaxation things we can do. I think a helpful analogy for people to keep in mind is to think it through um, like a pressure release valve. So maybe if you have like just even a few moments um, spread throughout the day, even if it's for, you know, one to three minutes um, several times during the day, 
that might be a really healthy way to um, release some of the tension, some of the stress. It can help us stay more grounded in the present moment and to refocus on the things that we can control. And in turn, um, doing those things actually throughout the day uh, may help us uh, a little bit later in the evening with being able to settle our, our body and our mind and be able to sleep better at night. That's great. Craig, we've talked a lot about what people can do, but obviously this is um, a different situation for different populations. We have kids who are out of school and maybe anxious about what they understand and what they don't understand. Older adults in particular may be um, isolated during this time. And I'm wondering, could you speak a little bit to um, uh, special populations and how they might manage this differently? Yeah, I think um, let's, let's talk about three uh, populations. Uh, so the first one we'll talk about are uh, parents and, and caregivers uh, right now. Um, you know, we ask our uh, parents and, and caregivers already to wear a lot of hats and now they're being added to now being a uh, stay-at-home teacher and activity planner and probably to some degree being a therapist, you know, to their kiddos, you know, as well too. Um, so fr from a parent and caregiver perspective, now is not the time to be a perfect parent. Um, now is the time to be an okay parent. Um, a lot of people are sighing in relief right now. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they get their blessing, you know, for that, just being an okay uh, parent, because there's going to be flexibility in schedules. It's, it's actually really, really good um, to have um, solid uh, routines, you know, in place with kids, but also having some flexibility. And I'll, um, a little bit later, I'll talk about a resource that will be good for parents, you know, to go to. It's also um, knowing that you're human as well. Um, so especially in situations where um, you maybe have uh, uh, two parents or a couple of caregivers in the home, communication, 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 staying on the same page with things, trading off so we can give each other a little bit of respite care. And in some of those homes where maybe it's a single parent or a single caregiver, um, do look for those tiny little pockets that they may not last very long, but find those little pockets where you can kind of decompress a little bit so that you can be more present, uh, whether it be for your children or maybe um, a, an ill relative um, that you're caregiving for. So um, caregivers and parents is, is one population. Secondly, we do think of, of our kiddos as well too. And we, we really want um, the kids to lead the way in terms of letting us what, know what they know and also maybe telling us what they want to know, you know, as well. So we want to let them lead. And really, it's important for us, kids will, will look at the caregivers. So if we can kind of maintain, you know, calm and concern at the same time, that's just a very helpful starting point. So it's important to acknowledge their fears. It's, it's important to acknowledge their worries as well, too. But also try to shift that towards, um, and these are the things that we can do together to, to uh, protect ourselves or just because other people are getting sick, that doesn't necessarily mean that's gonna happen to us as well too. So trying to find those ways to connect with our kids, um, chat with our kids at the level that makes sense for them and checking in with them, you know, making that maybe even a routine check-in point during the day. Just like how we were talking about a little bit earlier on, you wanna limit their exposure to the media, you know, as well too. Um, so also as a parent, we got to watch out what's going on in the background when our kids are, you know, around us. 
Um, third and final population uh, that, that you had mentioned, Elena, is, is also our elderly populations. Um, these are folks that already um, are at um, more vulnerability for being socially distanced uh, or isolated, and this is being amplified right before us. And on top of this, um, many of our older folks fall into a higher risk category as well, too, so we can imagine the fear increasing. So this is where it's really important for us as family members and as neighbors and folks in our community to make sure that we are reaching out uh, to them, um, the ones that we know, um, on a routine basis, just to make sure that they're doing okay, but also be willing to help out to get them the things that they need, whether it be food or groceries or supplies, um, or maybe even sometimes their medications. And there's safe ways that we can do that, um, going by and uh, to, to their home, knocking on the door, leaving a, a care package. Of course, you want to let them know that you're coming by. So we don't want to scare anybody, right? Um, so make sure that they know ahead of time we're coming by and, and leaving stuff for them as well to still maintaining healthy distance, but hopefully providing um, some lifelines that they may need. Sounds like some great projects for our children as well and ways to get them involved. So a resource that I had alluded to a little bit earlier on uh, for parents and caregivers, I would really recommend two websites. One is understood.org. And this is a great website that gives ideas about I just uh, maybe some ideas for schedules during the day. What are some different things um, that folks can do? It also has some great talking tips for parents um, to be able to chat with um, kids at different developmental age levels. So that's a really good resource. Another really good uh, resource is healthykids.org. That's a great one for parents and, and uh, caregivers as well. Um, that can help give people some corrective information, uh, but also some additional talking points and some tips for managing uh, being a caregiver during this time. Oh, those are great, Craig. So understood.org and healthykids.org. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Craig Sawchuk, um, giving us some great tips for coping and helping our family members, our neighbors, our friends, and our colleagues to um, cope during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Do you have any last uh, wisdom to share with us? Well, again, we'll, we'll come back to a comment that we made earlier on is that there's a lot of altruism out there. We just want to remind people that the outcome is resilience. We will all get to the other side of this. It may not be graceful. We will get to a, the other side of this and we will get to a better place with this. Just keep doing what we can do to try to keep a positive attitude, to stay optimistic and to help out with your family and your neighbors. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for the recommendations and the words of encouragement and for your time today, Dr. Sasha. Thanks for having me on today. Due to the COVID-19 response, the second half of our show will be Encore presentations of previously aired programs. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Let's talk about high-intensity function training, such as boot camp-type exercise classes. They're super popular. Dr. Edward Laskowski, co-director of Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine, explains how you can benefit from this type of exercise while avoiding injuries. He says we have an epidemic in this country of obesity and sedentary lifestyle, so anything to get people motivated and moving is good. High-intensity functional training programs are usually very motivating. They're social and they 
involve very simple things, oftentimes just your body weight to get your heart rate up and receive benefits. The programs tend to include exercises that involve jumping, ballistic movements, or movements that are complex to perform and come with a higher risk of injury. That's why Dr. Laskowski says when it comes to strength training, technique is key. It's not practice makes perfect. It's perfect practice. He really wants the good perfect movement patterns in your body's tissue to be loaded equally. For example, if you do a squat improperly, the back could be at risk. With burpees, your shoulders and wrists could be at risk. When you do the exercises, your technique should be the best it can be. One way to ensure optimal technique is to monitor fatigue. Dr. Laskowski says when you get tired, your form tends to deteriorate, making you more susceptible to injury. Also, Dr. Laskowski emphasizes the importance of letting your trainer or program instructor know of any pre-existing injuries or medical conditions. They can modify exercises so you still get results without risking injury. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Chives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, have you heard of a procedure called gamma knife radiation? I have, yes. Actually, gamma knife radio surgery? Well, it's a type of radiation therapy, actually, that is used to treat lesions in the brain, including tumors. Now, it's not really surgery. There's no incision. And in fact, that's part of the appeal. No incision, no hole in the skull, and you go home the very same day. How here can to you tell, beat that? Yeah, here to tell us more about gamma knife radio surgery is Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon Dr. Bruce Pollock. Welcome to the program. It's great to have you here again. Great, thank you for having me back. Thanks, Dr. Pollock. So uh, it's a funny term, radio surgery. Explain to us what that means. Okay, it was basically a marriage of of two disciplines. So you were combining radiation oncology and neurosurgery. And so when they came up with this concept in the 1950s, they essentially labeled this radiosurgery. And radiation oncology would mean radiation for cancers, or yes. radiation for tumors. Yes. Where does the gamma come in? The gamma comes specifically with this device in that the radiation sources, which emit gamma rays, uh, which are very, very similar physically to X-rays, uh, but because they were using cobalt-60, it released cobalt um, gamma rays, and so that came up with the idea of the gamma knife. So you've identified a lesion in the brain, and you've decided that a gamma knife is appropriate to treat it. Uh, How do you make that decision, and and what's the planning like? Essentially, there's a number of factors we think about. Uh, It comes down to the size of a lesion, its location, and other patient comorbidities as well as patient preference. So if a patient is ill, you might do this as opposed to surgery. Correct. And if if the thing that radiation does not do that surgery, meaning resection, does is it doesn't relieve mass effector size. So if it's a large lesion where symptoms are being caused by pressure on an adjacent structure, then the next step would be surgical removal. Uh, But if it's basically symptomatic related to location but it's not very large, then often radiosurgery is a good alternative to surgical removal. How is this different from regular radiation? Well, typically when we think of radiation therapy, we think of larger field radiation where the dose is broken up over time, whether it's days or weeks. Uh, The older definition of radiosurgery was that all the radiation was given in a single session. Uh, More recently, it's been broken up uh, that it could be up to five sessions, but with the gamma knife, it's almost always given as a single session. 
And how long does it take? How long would it take? Um, the throughput uh, from showing up at the hospital to leaving typically is on the order of three or four hours. Uh, the actual radiation delivery can be as short as 10 or 12 minutes or as long as two, two and a half hours. And what holds the head steady? We use a frame. Uh, the head fixation is based on a frame that has pins that actually go through your scalp and capture the outer portion of the skull. And so it's a rigid fixation. Um, once that's in place, then we do imaging, and then we use that imaging to identify the target within this frame. It acts like a map. So does the gamma knife, in essence, remove the tumor or what does it do to the tumor basically it acts like any radiation and that the the energy of the radiation uh, causes d disruption of the dna within the tumor with ideally very little damage to the adjacent tissue and so um, as the tumor tries to divide and grow there's enough double strand dna damage that the cells can't match up their dna and then subsequently your own body comes in and eats up the tumor and so for tumors that are slow growing they're where only one one or two percent of cells are ever dividing at a time. Uh, these things will shrink slowly over the course of many years, whereas more malignant tumors where 30, 40 percent may be dividing at any time often will show shrinkage within weeks. Are a fair number of these that you do related to metastasis, meaning a uh, patient has lung cancer, kidney cancer, and the cells have broken off, gotten into the bloodstream, and metastasized to the brain and grow there? Is that a fair? It, it's the most common indication, certainly, with across the U.S. and the world. Um, we still continue to do a large number of benign uh, lesions here at the Mayo Clinic, as well as vascular malformation and functional disorders, but uh, the workload of almost every rate surgical center is brain metastases. Vascular malformation? Uh, basically, the one we treat primarily is an arteriovenous malformation. It's typically a congenital lesion of abnormal blood vessels within the head uh, that can cause a stroke or a hemorrhage. Uh, and so the goal of the radiation is to block off the blood vessels over time, uh, and then blood can't get through the AVM, and then your risk of a subsequent stroke uh, pretty much becomes zero. So you avoid a catastrophic event. Yes. And, and how do you find those, those AV um, malformations? Historically, the, the majority of them showed up after a hemorrhage. Uh, but more recently, as people get imaged with headaches and dizziness, we find a lot of incidental AVMs. And so the decision in, uh, of making, like we're going to intervene for your unruptured AVM is different, and patients' mindsets are very different. So if you come in after a stroke, you're much more amenable to thinking, I would have my head opened up for that. However, if you go in and say, I have some dizziness, and we say you have this thing that may cause a stroke in the next 30 years, an outpatient-based procedure is, is often more tenable to the patient. Yeah. What are some of the side effects of gamma knife surgery? The immediate side effects are almost zero. There can be some local tenderness at the pin sites. There can be localized swelling. Uh, but you don't get hair loss and nausea and vomiting like you do with radiation therapy. We think of our early effects, and early to us usually means over months, where there can be swelling of the adjacent tissue that could cause headaches or potentially a seizure if it's in the right location. Uh, and then there's long-term effects that are getting less and less as our, develop, as our treatments get better. Uh, we're able to deliver the radiation more accurately. And so the amount of radiation that's going to the adjacent tissues is less today than it was 30 years ago. So patients have that gamma knife procedure, and then how long do they wait 
to see if it worked? I mean, it's not immediate, is it? No. Uh, it depends on the, on the reason of why we did it. So for benign tumors, we typically would image you at 6 or 12 months later for a vascular malformation a year or so later. Uh, for a malignancy, we typically do imaging roughly every three months for the first year. Uh, on that imaging, we look at the tumor itself to see if it's responded. Uh, we look for radiation injury. But our biggest thing we look for on the follow-up imaging is more tumors. Uh, sure. If we do a gamma knife procedure for a brain metastases, the chance you'll make another tumor within the brain in a year is roughly 50 or 60 percent. And then you zap that one. We often will zap it again. <laughs> we have people that are, are frequent flyers and will come back six or seven or eight times over. So the most common indication is for a metastasis, meaning a cancer that's gotten into the bloodstream and spread to the brain. Yes. And how big of a lesion can you treat? If it's surrounded by brain, usually the, a three-centimeter rule, which is slightly more than an inch in diameter, is about as big as we can go. Uh, but if it's a lesion that's against the, the bones at the base of the skull, often we can go quite a bit larger than that. And your success rate, I assume, with AV malformations is very good. Yep. Benign tumors, you could pretty much cure those most of the time? Um, very much, almost always. Do you ever do primary cancers of, of the brain, meaning a, a cancer that started in the brain, didn't spread there? Yep, uh, it's very infrequent. Um, it, 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 there, there's a few indications in which we do it, but uh, cytoreductive therapy or surgery followed by radiation therapy and chemotherapy is certainly the mainstay of care for that indication. You said you're getting better, uh, better at reducing the side effects. What is new in gamma knife surgery? Um, over time, several things. Our imaging has gotten better. Our our uh, platforms for dose planning have gotten better. The devices itself have gotten better. And at this point, we're actually entering our 31st year of clinical practice with the Gamma Knife in Rochester. So we're approaching 10,000 patients. Our understanding of doses that we need to use, predictable side effects, when to image people, all these things have been accumulated over the decades. Have you been here that whole time? I have not been here that long. I've been, I'm, I'm coming up on year 24. So wow. just the last 5,000 for you. Uh, about the last 5,000. Wow. That's right. <laughs> Gamma knife radiosurgery. It's an alternative to traditional surgery to treat several different lesions of the brain, benign tumors, malignant tumors, AV malformations. You know, it's safe. It's a one-time treatment, and you go home the same day. <laughs> Our thanks to Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon Dr. Bruce Pollock. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dr. Pollock. We're going to take a short break. Still to come, we'll learn about what the differences are between hospice care and palliative care. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Palliative care. You know, we've heard about it before, but it's specialized medical care that focuses on providing patients relief from pain and other symptoms of a serious medical illness. Now, who's a candidate? Who can benefit? What services does a palliative care team provide? And what's the difference between palliative care and hospice care? Joining us by telephone phone from the Mayo Clinic in Florida to explain is palliative care specialist, Dr. Masha Robinson. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Dr. Robinson, for joining us. Now, she is not only a palliative care specialist, she's also a neurologist, actually did uh -huh. her uh, residency in neurology right here at the Mayo Clinic. So, but how do you like it in Jacksonville? Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoy my time in Jacksonville. I split my time between neurology and palliative medicine, and I also have a neuropalliative care clinic here. 
So I'm thoroughly enjoying the work that I'm doing. Neuropalliative care, meaning that patients with uh, brain issues, strokes, etc., you provide palliative care for them? That's exactly correct. Not only strokes and brain conditions, but also people that have, for instance, dementia, multiple sclerosis, ALS, almost any neurologic condition Uh, can benefit. And unfortunately, there are a fair number of those. I think we're still at a point where palliative care and hospice care are confused. So set everyone straight. Yes, I think a lot of people, when they hear palliative care, they automatically think we're talking about hospice care. What I usually say to people is that palliative care is a focus on trying to improve quality of life for people that have serious or advanced medical conditions. And that's really an umbrella term. Uh, Many people with advanced conditions, chronic conditions can benefit from palliative care. And it's appropriate, we say, at any age and at any stage. Hospice care is palliative care, but specifically for people who are closer to the end of life. Usually, when people have a prognosis of six months or less, if the disease progresses in its normal fashion, they are eligible for hospice care. So all hospice care is palliative care, but not all palliative care is hospice care. And part of the difference is if you're in palliative care, you don't have to stop treatment for your underlying condition. But generally, when you go to hospice care, medical treatment stops. Is that correct? That's essentially correct. Usually when people are in palliative care, it can be concurrent with their, for instance, chemotherapy or the treatments that they're getting for lung disease or heart disease or with dialysis. In general, when people transition to hospice care, they're really focusing on comfort, quality of life, and not necessarily life-prolonging care. Now, specific discussions would be had with the hospice team about what medications and interventions would continue and which ones would not. So uh, if you are a candidate for palliative care, how do you get hooked up with with the team? Do you have to be in the hospital to to, uh, see a palliative care specialist? So let me say almost all providers are providing some degree of palliative care. We call that primary palliative care. Your primary care doctor, your neurologist, your cardiologist, everybody is trying to help people live better with a better quality of life. But then there are specialist palliative care Uh, physicians and teams, uh, for instance, that's what I do, and we can be referred to by people's primary care doctors or other specialists the same way that they can refer you to a cardiologist or a pulmonologist or neurologist. What's the most common reason? I mean, why would a family practice physician say, you know, I think we need to get the palliative care team involved? Why would that be? Uh, Many times that people are having difficulty with complex symptoms uh, or if there are some issues between the patient and family members, or if there's a question about what's the next best step or what are the goals of care, people may say it's good to sit down with a specialist in palliative care to really talk through some of these issues or to make recommendations for treatments or management moving forward. Is it covered by insurance? It is. It's actually billed in people's insurance companies the same way other consults are. It makes sense if it's improving people's lives, trying to help them as they go through a diagnosis. The dialysis example is perfect because that's something that is a long term uh, that you need to survive, but it definitely brings hardships on the patient and the caregivers. That's actually correct. And many times people and their loved ones, their caregivers, are silently Uh, going through many emotions or thoughts or questions about what is the best next step? Do we want to continue the dialysis? And if so, for how long? Or do we think the dialysis is still being as 
helpful as it was when we first started it. Sometimes just having some of these conversations takes the burden off of the patient or family members, and they are able to speak openly and honestly about what they actually want, what their preferences are. You've talked about a palliative care team. Who's on your team? Generally, palliative care teams include a, a group of people. We call it an interdisciplinary team. So there are physicians, often some advanced practice providers like a nurse practitioner, physician assistant. We have social workers. There's usually some spiritual care providers as well and a nurse. Are you particularly adept at helping with pain management? We are. We spend uh, much of the time during our training focused on symptom management. So pain but other non-pain symptoms are also uh, Uh, things that we often see, such as nausea, constipation, uh, shortness of breath, and we can provide some recommendations to people's primary care physicians or other specialists about how to manage some challenging situations with those symptoms. How often do you get the family members involved? Is that an important part of what you do? Absolutely. Our care team is not only our patient, but also their caregivers or family members. And so much of what we do during our discussions in the office or in the hospital are A, focus on symptom management, talk about goals of care, provide some support to caregivers, asking about how are you coping with everything going on and making sure that we know what the resources are that they need and try to align those with the available resources uh, that we're aware of. And so those are kind of the three big things that we do. And the last one I would say is advanced care planning, which is a gift not only to uh, the patient so that his or her wishes and preferences are known, but also really to the caregivers and families because they feel like they can honor their loved one's wishes and not feel the guilt of making those decisions unilaterally. Do you also help patients and their families decide between different treatment options? We often will be asked to see people to talk about what's the next best step. And many times patients and the family members will come and say, this is what has been offered to us. What do you think about that? And it's more of a discussion about what are your goals? What are your priorities? What are you hoping for? And oftentimes that helps the person and families with what the best decision is with regard to treatments. And so while we don't often lead people to either treatment A or treatment B, we facilitate a conversation about what may be best for them given their situation. Well, you've done a good job of explaining that quality of life is the main goal of what palliative care is all about. When patients and or their caregivers are thinking this is maybe something that we should look into a little bit more, what would you suggest that they do? So Mayo Clinic has a website for our palliative care group, and they can look on there and read a little bit. There's also a video that highlights a couple of patients uh, that have had good experiences with the palliative care group, and I think that'll provide a little insight into uh, who we are, what we do, and perhaps how they could benefit Palliative care, it's a resource for anyone living with a serious illness. It can improve quality of life. It helps with managing pain, and it helps patients understand their choices for medical treatment. And if you opt for palliative care, you don't have to stop treatment for your underlying disease. Palliative care, a great resource for anyone with a serious illness. Our thanks to palliative care specialist, Dr. Maisha Robinson from the Mayo Clinic in Florida. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Dr. Robinson. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.